All right, let's go. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Let's get the house lights up real quick. Romans chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is really, really simple. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of super important things. But the most important thing is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. And we want you to know God. Like, for real, want you to know Him. And so, if the Bible is the place where you come to know Him, and if you don't have a Bible of your own to read on your own, that puts you at a disadvantage. That's how math works, right? All right? And so, if you don't have a Bible of your own, take that one home and start reading it, and I'll call it a win, and I'll buy new Bibles, and everybody will be happy, right? Woo! All right. Romans chapter 4. All right, so we are in the middle of a series. We've been walking through a series of the book of Romans for a while that we're calling Just and Justifier. Um, we're going to actually close out chapter 4 today, and then we're going to take an extended break for the rest of the summer. Uh, July and August, uh, we're going to shut down the series, and we just got these special plans. We're going to do a little light-hearted summer series that you're going to find out more about later. Um, but for today, for today, we're going to close out chapter 4. All right. Um, so far through this series, uh, we've seen Paul begin to build his gospel skyscraper, a logical argument uh, from the beginning to the end for the gospel and why that gospel needs to be taken to the ends of the earth for, for God's glory by God's people, right? And he starts out with the foundation that all men everywhere, every single person that has ever lived is separated from God because of sin. That's the foundation. There's no getting out of that. Not just some minor random list of offenses. No, his argument is that man is without excuse because of both the revelation of God through the rest of creation and the indwelling sense of Him in our hearts. That every single one of us, because of those two things, are without excuse because we reject God, we suppress the truth, and we exalt ourselves. That's his argument in the first chapter of the book of Romans. That at the end of the day, we all, every single one of us here, kicks God off the throne and tries to place ourselves on it. That's his point. At a most basic level, that's what sin is. And Paul also argues that he who is perfectly just must, and the answer is must, the correct word is must, do something about that reality. Otherwise, he's not just. If, if God doesn't act on that terrible sin, if he fails to act on that, then he's not actually just. Whether by fear or by laziness, allowing sin to go unpunished actually makes him an incredibly unjust judge, right? God can't be just and just like act like it's not a problem. He's got to do something about it. And so the wrath of God, what we've been talking about the last several weeks, is not some fringe doctrine invented by angry fire and brimstone preachers looking to put their thumb on people. It's actually a necessary piece of the gospel. The wrath of God is the only, only appropriate response to my traitorous heart from he who gives to all exactly what they deserve. I, Stephen Woodard, deserve punishment for my sin. How about you? And God, as the perfect judge, will not fail in his moral obligation to pour it out. It is his intrinsic responsibility as the just king of the cosmos. But the perfect Justice 
is not God's only attribute, right? Paul also describes him as the great justifier. He declares righteous those who are not righteous. Now, those two things ought to feel like they're in conflict with each other, right? They ought to feel like they're in tension because they are. Those things don't get along in the same personality. You can't be just and the one who calls guilty people just. That, like, that, that's not how that works. Guilty people are guilty. To call them not guilty, anything less than guilty, means you're not exactly handing out what is deserved. And so the question becomes, does that mean that God waffles back and forth between those two positions? Does God like practice His justice on Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, and then He goes to the, the, the merciful side of His personality like Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays, because obviously He takes Sunday off, Right? Like, like, does God just waffle back and forth between those two things? No. He's got to be both at the same time somehow. He can't be back and forth. He can't shut down part of his personality, part of his character for part of the time, and pick up another part of his character for that, that portion, right? He's got to somehow be both. And so we learned last week that God doesn't change. He doesn't waffle back and forth between positions. He's immutable is the theological word that we use, right? Immutable. He doesn't just not change. He cannot change. He's incapable of change. And so that means that there has to be a way for God to be both just and justifier at the exact same moment. Both attributes existing eternally in infinite perfection. So how does God get to be both? The answer is Jesus, right? The eternal second person of the Trinity, God himself, put on flesh and dwelt among us in real human history. Jesus lived a perfect life of active obedience to God's holiness and commands, and he died on a cross in passive obedience as a substitute absorbing the wrath of God. And I know that's a massive sentence, but it needs to be a massive sentence, so let me say it again. All right, if you're a note taker, here's your chance to write something down. Jesus lived a life of active obedience to God's holiness and commands, and he died on the cross as a substitute in passive obedience, absorbing the wrath of God. The simple version of that is that Jesus came and did what you and I cannot do. At all. So what is that? He pleased God with the living obedience of his life, and he pleased God with the sacrificial obedience of his death. That's what that means. God's infinite justice and God's infinite mercy are both fulfilled in the same moment of the cross. And so now all those who trust him through faith are counted as righteous before the Father because Jesus as God paid the debt of our sin and his righteousness is credited to us, right? That's the gospel. And it's also what we talked about last week, right? We brought up the example of Abraham. Abraham did exactly that. He trusted God in faith, right? And he was counted as righteous. It doesn't matter that Abraham lived a few millennia before Jesus actually stepped onto the picture. He still trusted God and God's work for him. It doesn't matter that Abraham lived several hundred years before the law was even given. Abraham trusted God, believed God in his promises, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And there are several examples 
in the life of Abraham to prove that his faith was legitimate, right? Like we can talk about the almost sacrifice of Isaac. We can talk about circumcision. We can talk about going where he, God told him to go without actually ha- knowing what the finish line was, right? Like that's how Abraham is called out. But we learned last week that all of those things were the fruit of something that already existed, already occurred in Abraham's heart. A simple but genuine trust that God is good and you can believe Him. Right? God made a promise. Abraham believed that promise. And God looked upon that belief in delight. That's the story of Abraham. And so that's also where we left off last week, right? You're ready to look at the next piece of Paul's gospel skyscraper this morning? Paul's going to continue to use his Abraham example to flesh out some other things that we need to know about faith. And in chapter 4, picking up in verse 13, he says this, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of what? For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. All right, so we see a few different things here. Um, for starters, we see Paul continue his argument, like we said before, that God's promises come through faith and not through uh, the law or through obedience to his commands, right? And so we've seen over the last several weeks that now that, that the law, God's commands are a burden that we're not actually capable of fulfilling, that we're not actually capable of living up to. The, proper, the primary purpose of God's law, what we've talked about over the last three weeks now, is to show us that we're actually unable to keep the law. That's the point. That because of our brokenness and because of our indwelling sin, we fall short of God's glory, 3.23 says, right? That we fall short of God's glory and it's impossible for us, actually impossible for us to please Him through the law and through law keeping because our best attempts are always stained by our brokenness and sin. We can never get all the way there. And so to see the law correctly is to actually see it as a God-given mercy meant to drive us into the arms of a Savior. To see the law correctly is to see it as a God-given mercy to drive us into the arms of Jesus. The purpose of the law is to show us how desperately we need Jesus to be our Savior. That's the point. And then here in verse 14, Paul takes what I think is the next logical step. He asks a hypothetical question. He says, okay then, all right. Well, what if? What would become of God's promises if he like, you know, did expect us to keep the law. Like, like we know that we can, but let's just say for a second that he did expect us to keep the law. What does that mean about God's promises? What does that mean about God's character? In other words, if God really did expect us to fulfill it perfectly in order to receive the benefits of his promise, what would that then mean about God and what he says? That's the hypothetical question on the table. And Paul says here in verse 14, that faith becomes null and void. It's pointless. There's zero purpose to faith after that. But it's actually worse than pointless. Because that would mean that God knowingly made a covenant, a contract, 
and condition something within that contract that he already knew we couldn't fulfill. Does that make God the nice guy? That's a problem, right? That's no bueno. That, that's, that would actually make him a monster trying to take advantage of us, right? If God actually expected us to keep the law, knowing that we could never actually keep the law, and to make a contract on those terms, that would make him the bad guy in the story. God doesn't ever play the bad guy in the story. You understand that, right? The law was given to us for our good. To drive us to Jesus in repentance and in faith. But then Paul says something in verse 15 that people usually get in a little tizzy about. Read it again with me. For the law brings what? Wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay, so the first part of that sentence is actually the easy part. It sounds like a weighty sentence. The law brings wrath, right? But it's actually perfectly consistent with everything we've seen and talked about so far. The more someone attempts to justify themselves by keeping the law, the more they try to fix themselves up and make themselves out to be like God, the more they prove how terribly incapable they are of living up to it, right? Like the harder they try, the deeper they dig the hole, and that's Paul's point. The, the law, it only brings wrath. But this is the next piece that really causes a ruckus here. Where there is no law, there is no what? Transgression. So, does that mean that if God never gave us the law, that there wouldn't be anything for us to be guilty of and we would be sinless? That's a fair question, right? Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Does, is God the bad guy for giving us a law we couldn't be obedient to? Knowing that we would never fulfill it? Because if there were no law, there'd be nothing to be guilty of. And there have been people throughout the history of the church with a capital C who have looked at this text and tried to argue exactly that. But is God ever the bad guy in the story? No. There are some other major movements in church history that look at this text and argue that, well, yeah, God did give us the law at one point, and that was the system at one time, but that was, that, that was an older model, right? And now we have Jesus, and Jesus brings grace. Jesus brings mercy. And so God has evolved a little bit. He doesn't do that anymore. Some of you are starting to see the flaw in that logic, right? God is not less concerned with holiness now than he was then. God is not... More gracious now than he was then. He's immutable, right? He doesn't change. Hebrews 13.8 is explicit. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That same line of thinking also ignores the rest of Romans that we've talked about so far, right? Like we made it a point throughout this whole series to show that, that we were guilty of sin and deserve the wrath of God long before the law ever came into the picture. That there was something buried deep in our hearts long, long before God handed us the law to show what that thing is. At a core level, we are guilty of rejecting Him and exalting ourselves, right? Long before a list of do's and don'ts ever got handed around. So what's going on in this text then? Like what, what does Paul actually mean here? Well, I think the key is in the word transgression. 
Paul doesn't say that uh, without the law there'd be no sin. He says that without the law there'd be no transgression. Those aren't the same thing. Transgression is a type of sin, but transgression is not the entirety of sin. You catch the difference there? Uh, the Greek word there is the word parabasis. It's an intentional step beyond a line. It's a willful act of defiance across or against a known rule. That's a transgression. Paul assumes here that there is a type of sin that brings more wrath than other types of sin. But wait a second, Woodard. I thought that God sees all sin the same. Yeah, I've heard that too. Problem is that that idea is nowhere in the Bible. It's, it's not actually there. It's a completely unbiblical idea, actually. There are ideas that are close to that. Um, like, I think normally the God sees all sin, the same idea gets thrown around by people who are trying their best to articulate that, that all sin is deserving of wrath, right? All sin is infinitely heinous because it's, uh, uh, it's, it deserves an infinite punishment because it's infinitely heinous because it's committed against an infinitely valuable God. Right? And some of you have been around long enough to remember the pulling the legs off analogy that we've used in the past, right? It still applies. So a piece of that idea is true. God does punish all sin, but it, it doesn't logically follow that there is no sin that deserves an extra measure of wrath. All sin deserves wrath, but that does not mean that all sin doesn't, that some sin doesn't deserve more wrath, right? And some of y'all, at least every parent in the room here probably, probably instinctively already understands this dynamic, right? If my child does something that's rude or mean, like we're going to pull them aside and have a talk, right? It doesn't matter in that moment if I've given an explicit rule against that thing. You don't get to be rude and mean. It's, it's a problem. It's, it's wrong based on who they were created to be. It's wrong based on the image bearer of God uh, that's across from them that the act was committed against. It's wrong even based on how their actions reflect back on my character. It's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. I don't have to give them a specific rule in order for that thing to be wrong. It's just wrong, right? And so we're going to have a little talk about it. And based on the severity, there may be some level of discipline in there to make the lesson stick, right? Every parent in this room has walked through exactly that moment. But there's also other times in my kid's life that it does not follow that example at all because they knew exactly what they were doing. It doesn't matter how many times we've discussed and rediscussed. It doesn't matter how many times we've disciplined and disciplined again. It doesn't matter how clear daddy has made it. They saw something, had a selfish moment and went, I don't care, I'm going to do it anyways. And there ain't a parent in this room who's ever walked through that, right? Hear me, church. In that moment, we're not just having a talk, <laughs> right? There's more on the line here than just having a talk. The idea that God sees all sin exactly the same is probably, probably a well-intentioned attempt to help people understand the severity of all sin. That's a good instinct. But the side effect of that logic the unintended, hopefully unintended consequence of that logic is that it ends up creating a perceived view of sin that actually paints God into a corner and robs Him of justice. Right? It paints the perfect judge of all the earth into a corner where He's not allowed to give harsher punishment where harsher punishment is deserved. That's an unjust way of doing things. Right? 
Any judge that we told, you can go this far and only this far. Forget about how heinous this sin was. No, no, no. Let's, let's kind of make it the lowest common denominator of punishment. We would balk at that judge all day long, right? The one who perfectly weighs not only your actions, but also your motives will give to all exactly what they deserve. The perfect judge who sees all and knows all and accounts for all will rule justly. And Paul here says that one of the purposes of the law was actually to reveal to us indwelling rebellion that already existed in our hearts toward God. That in His goodness and in His great love for us, God gave us a way to actually see the natural bent in our heart by actually creating a rule that we would willingly and defiantly step over. So we could say, we talked about this. Right? Like little kids testing the limits of their autonomy by intentionally breaking Daddy's rule, our hearts are far from Him. And no amount of law keeping over here will ever remove the rebellion and intentional law breaking over there. That's Paul's point. And so Paul's, God's promise, God's promise could never, ever, ever be fulfilled through our effort because if so, we'd never, ever get there. Even on our best day, we're still floundering in our sin. And that's our best day. Most days, we're gleefully reveling in blindness that we're somehow our own kings and queens. That's what's actually in our hearts. Oh, but thank God, that is not the end of the story. And let us rejoice that Paul is nowhere near done writing, because look at verse 16. Verse 16 says this, That is why it depends on what? On faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the, in the presence of the God whom, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. All right, so what's Paul saying? He's saying that grace through faith, rather than obedience through the law, grace through faith creates an avenue for those coming after Abraham to also be recipients of God's promise. That's what he's saying. That if the law was the route that God's promise was fulfilled through, and we already established that it's not, but if it were, then only those who had the law were actually in a position to even try and fulfill it. Who had the law? The Jews had the law, right? How about those not Jewish? Did they have the law? The Gentiles didn't have the law. And so Paul's point here is that if, 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 giant if, God's plan was that his promise would be fulfilled through law keeping, then that would mean that only people who had the law could ever even chase after it. They can't fulfill it, but hey, at least the Jews could try, right? What about the Gentiles then? They just, you know, out of luck, I guess? No one's making it around the track, but at least the Jews could get out the gate. Except for a pesky little promise. 
See, if you know your Bible well, then you know that God has a bunch of these pesky little promises kind of scattered all throughout. Things that he's playing the long game on. Slowly bringing to fruition later down the line for his better and bigger glory. And Paul points to one of those promises here all the way back in Genesis 12. You know that promise? Promise that God made to to Abraham to make him the father of many nations. Plural. Not the father of a great nation. The father of many nations. Plural. See, it was never, ever God's plan to only work through the Jews. He definitely worked through the Jews in a powerful way. He used them in massive ways for his purposes to to serve God's great plan of redemption. But they are not the only people he's saving, right? And thanks be to God, because I'm looking around, not many of you look Jewish. The Texas boy definitely ain't. So we're the beneficiaries of that promise being fulfilled, aren't we? Salvation, God's promise, according to Paul's logic here, must come by grace through faith because, well, that's the thing that all peoples actually have a chance of pulling off. Not everybody has the law, but we all have the option of grace here. Just like our father Abraham, each and every one of us can also trust God and trust his word to us, right? And why wouldn't we? I, like, like, why wouldn't we trust this God? The God Abraham trusted is the God who in verse 17 tells us that he can raise the dead and speaks life into existence. Can you do that? I can't do that. See, Abraham trusted God and was counted as righteous before any of those massive faith-level things happened in Abraham's life, before any of those things played out. But we have the joyful privilege of looking back on his life and seeing that our God is both powerful and faithful. And so Paul begins to flesh out some of those things here in verse 18. Look at it. In hope, in hope, he, Abraham, believes against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith, but when, uh, when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Okay, so if you're new to the church thing and you don't know the story, let me, let me kind of walk you through it. Early, early, early on in God's story of redemption in the Bible, God comes to a man named Abraham and makes him a massive promise, right? A massive, massive promise. He's going to love him. He's going to establish relationship with him. He's going to give him all kinds of wealth things. He's going to give him land and houses and, and, and uh, animals and all this money. And he's also going to give him this massive, massive family. Like, who doesn't want in on that deal? Like, anybody going, no, God, I'm good. But we're told in the Bible that Abraham had never met God before that moment. That he was a pagan idolater off in the land of Ur. He didn't worship the true God. But God calls him out and says, hey, I'm going to make myself known to you. I'm going to love you. 
I'm going to draw near to you. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to, through you, bless the world. And Abraham goes, sign me up. He believed him. He's going to give him a massive family. That sounds cool, right? Like, who doesn't want in on that? But that's also kind of what Oprah does, right? You get a car, and you get a house, and you get your debt paid off. So who cares, right? Except Oprah cannot speak life into existence. Try as hard as she might. And so God's going to up the ante a little bit. Abraham is 75 years old when God makes him that massive promise. But Abraham doesn't have any children yet. His wife, Sarah, is barren. They don't have any kids. And so the, the whole idea that God's going to give him a massive, massive family, well, it already puts this story in the category of needing a miracle, doesn't it? We're already to that point, but apparently the job isn't hard enough for God yet. So, well, he's just going to make it a little bit more difficult for himself. Like, because crazy things can happen at 75, right? Like, none of you wish that on yourselves, but crazy things have happened. So what does God do? He makes them wait. And wait. For 24 years, they wait for God to fulfill that massive promise. And then when Abraham is 99 years old, God comes to him again and says, okay, it's time. This time next year, you're going to have a son. Congratulations, Daddy. Some of our more seasoned saints in here probably feel what Abraham is feeling right now. In verse 19, he says, he counted his body as good as dead. How many of you, those of you in the 75 plus crowd are thinking, you know what, now's a good time to start having kids. Some of you in the 25 plus crowd are wondering, what if you had to wait another 25 years past that 75 year mark? Our God is the God of the ridiculous for his glory. He gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that don't exist. He is powerful. He is good. He is almighty. He is trustworthy. He is the good, wise creator, king. And Abraham saw that. Abraham got a glimpse of that. He got a taste of it. And when God came to him in the land of Ur and called him out of darkness and into light. And so in that moment, Abraham's choice to believe God was not some blind step into nothingness. It was an intelligent an intentional trust fall into the arms of he who is obviously worthy of his trust. Faith in the Bible, properly defined, is not blind. It's just not. I don't know where people often get that idea from. It's so pervasive in our culture. But every single time that God calls on someone in the Bible to trust him, it is always based on his previous character. It is always based on the things he has already done for them. Always. It is always rooted in his goodness and in the things that he's gone, look at this, look at what I give you, follow me. Always. And so we see, so we, just like Abraham, can joyfully place our hope in God and his promises too. 
And all it takes is to go, look what our God has done. Look who he is. You remember this? Do you remember that? How about we follow him in faith too? Not because our eyes are closed, but because we're following a God who opens eyes to see. To see him, to see his goodness. And so the question for each and every one of us, it's always going to come down to this. Do we legitimately believe that he's trustworthy? See, if the answer is yes, then what could ever go wrong? And secondly, like what other option would somehow be a better choice? But Paul's not done. Look at verse 22. This, or that, excuse me, 22, that is why his faith was, quote, counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our, what's that word? Justification. So why has Paul just absolutely belabored the example of Abraham so much, right? Like it's been four weeks for us, a couple of chapters for him. Why has Paul just beat this horse to death? Like, why has Paul gone on and on and on about Abraham for the last two chapters? Listen, it's not only because Abraham is the best example of salvation by grace through faith in the Old Testament. That is 100% true. It's not only because he's a great example of the law being a tool to help us see our sin and to help us see our need for a Savior. No, Paul here says that Abraham's story is told and retold and told again over and over again for our benefit. That's why he brings up the example. Because God wants to tell Abraham's story for us. God's desire is that you would come to the exact same saving faith that Abraham did. Where he sees God for who he is. He hears God's promise and goes, I'm in. Where are we going? Not by cleaning yourself up. You can't. Not by fulfilling all of God's demands. They're forever too steep. Not by birthright or by lineage. You don't have anything to offer back to God that he's somehow impressed by. The answer is Jesus. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who put on flesh and dwelt among us in real human history. He was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised up for our justification. Paul says, So now all who repent of their sin and come to Him in faith are reconciled, brought back into peace with Him, saved from wrath that they deserve for their sin and saved to adoption as sons and daughters of the King. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, we want to give you the opportunity to respond to Him in faith today. Abandon all of your attempts to exalt yourself and instead trust Jesus and Jesus alone. That's what we want to offer you today. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And Romans 10 tells us that you will be saved. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'll be down front if somebody wants somebody to walk them through that thought, pray with them through that thought. You can respond to Jesus this morning. The question is, will you? Is he trustworthy? And what do you do about it if he is? 
you're here this morning, you're already a follower of Jesus. How do we respond to God's word today? Same way we always do. Leaning in, right? We, we repent of sin and take the first step of obedience to the things he's called us to. By his grace, in his power, right? How often have you willingly, defiantly transgressed his good commands? Repent this morning, right? You can do that. How often have you taken your eyes off of him and chased after less trustworthy prizes? Repent. One of the most valuable things that you can do today is remind yourself of his goodness and the great things he's done. And then when you see him as trustworthy, how do you respond? There's also another response we can offer up this morning. Who is God putting in front of you this week that he intends to use you to open their eyes to him? Who needs to hear about the God who saves? The God who loves them long before they're capable of loving him in return. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. There'll be some leaders down front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you well this morning. Let's all respond to God's word today. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for Romans. Thank you for being the God who knows our weakness of frame. Who sees us inside and out and knows that our effort will never get us there because our effort is always stained by sin. And while in my mind that would immediately give me a reason to say let's just start this thing over hit the giant reset button it's all tainted from the beginning you saw a way to receive more glory by saving the unsavable by loving and making yourself known to those who war and rage against you by reconciling yourself through your own death to those who are worthy of your wrath. So like Abraham this morning, would you help us respond in faith? Would you open our eyes to see you and your goodness, to see the great things you've done, you've done, to see how trustworthy you are, and may we respond in kind. For those in here who already know you, would you Draw us close this morning. Would you strip away all the periphery things that we tend to add to this message and just bring us back to you? For those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known to them? I am fully convinced that when you open eyes to see, it changes us eternally. So would you open eyes today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.